0: Hello and welcome to this third episode of a podcast hosted by me, Aaron Mastani, at Aaron Mastani for Navarra Media, at Navarra Media, NavarraMedia.com. It's my own podcast. It is distinct from Navara FM, our flagship podcast. If you want to check that out, if you aren't already aware of just how fantastic Navara FM is, well, you can listen every Friday live from 1pm on Residence 104.4 FM and online at SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our website. Just Google Navarra FM, you'll find it pretty quickly. So back to today's podcast. We're still not quite sure what we're going to call it, right? We had a few suggestions, yeah, Bastani, Planet Communism, but I think we can do better. So once this is published, I hope that recommendations for a name come forward, because... The show needs a name, right? And we're going to keep on making more of these. The plan was several months ago, actually, to make my own podcast, a weekly or a fortnightly thing. Then, of course, history intervenes. JC's on the block. Hillary Benn was sacked. And I've been covering for the best part of two months the Labour leadership, really. And podcasts weren't really a big part of that. More so video. I love video. But you know what? When it comes to long-term thinking, rumination... Strategy, big ideas. I find podcasts actually a lot more powerful, uh, and actually, I know a lot of you do too. So, I will not be neglecting podcasts, and this personal podcast will be a big part of what I want to talk about, and I think what Navara Media wants to talk about too. We've got a number of podcasts in addition to Navara FM that are on the way. So, today, what am I talking about? Well, of course, what else could I be talking about but the Labour leadership results? We had yesterday, the first day of Labour Party conference. The big news, as you're all already aware, I'm sure, is that Jeremy Corbyn won the Labour leadership for the second time in 12 months. He won on an increased mandate on an increased turnout too. That can't be neglected in terms of, you know, how important that is politically. Uh, So last year, Jeremy got, I think, 59.5%. This year, he's got 61.8% rounded up, 62%, right? Owen Smith got 38%. He won on registered supporters, I think 70% of registered supporters. He won on affiliate members, so Fabian Society, unionists, uh, affiliated organisations to the Labour Party. And he won, of course, on members. He won on every single one. He won across the country, every single regional area, every nation, with the exception of Scotland. Uh, London was much closer than people might have thought. I knew London was going to be close. That's why I think a lot of the saving Labour Owen Smith types They didn't really understand what was going on. They thought that their conversations in London were an accurate representation of the country. That was never the case. Uh, JC pipped in London, but it was pretty close. And that's, of course, because the the staffers live here, the think tankers live here, the journalists live here. Effectively, the establishment (laughs) lives here, right? The party establishment. And that isn't just grandees at the top of the party. It's also people who are political advisors or who work in communications for... uh, MPs or organisations who aren't necessarily favourable to Jeremy Corbyn, but who are party members. So I knew that was going to happen, right? Um, I thought London would be pretty close. Uh, And of course, in Scotland, if you aren't a member of the Scottish Greens and you're not a member of the SNP and you're on the left, there's something strange going on, right? And Scottish Labour isn't a particularly left-wing organisation these days. It's also very small. I mean, I don't know in terms of membership what its numbers will be. Uh, Maybe one of you can inform me, I think it was five to ten thousand, five, ten thousand. Um and in terms of CLP nominations actually, this was already evident. So if you look at the CLP nominations, constituency Labour Party nominations ahead of time, all of Owen Smith's nominations effectively were coming from Scotland and London. So we knew this was happening. Interesting statistic, Corbyn wins an every age demographic as he did last year, except eighteen to twenty fours. So that's quite interesting. So last year he won that, this year he didn't. Of course, that's tainted somewhat by the fact that there were four candidates last year, there were only two this year. But that goes to show, right, the two memes in terms of how people try to dismiss Corbyn and his politics and Corbynistas as students who live in London, couldn't be further from the truth, students who live in London were statistically far more likely to vote for um, Owen Smith than uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn. I'd love to see some numbers on that, actually. And of course, that's informed by the politics of Labour students over the years. And that point I just made about younger people, staffs and so on, being on the right of the party comparatively. So that's the news. And of course, as that broke within a few tweets, I said, well, I'm going to do a podcast about this. I want to talk about this, throw some questions my way. I'm going to try and answer them. So I'm going to try and answer them. So, first question. This is from Rooftop Jangle at Rooftop Jacks at Arambastani at Navarra Media. Recipe recommendations for sugar-free jam. Hashtag lab 16. Stevia is my recommendation. It's an uh, incredibly powerful, uh, naturally occurring sweetener. Stevia leaf, very powerful. Don't overuse it, otherwise what you're applying it to will be inedible. Also very healthy. Obviously much more healthy than sorbitol or aspartame. Honey, well, the glycemic load is about the same as sugar, so maybe you should stay clear from that. Personally, I have no problem with sugar. It's delicious. Our Cells crave sugar, okay? I mean, that's uh, glucose and fructose, but, I mean, if if you want to have a cake or a, a bit of jam, why not? There's a reason why we have a sweet tooth as a species. Second question. This one's from Robert Jeffrey at Rob Jeff Ecology. At Aaron of Navarro Media, will Jeremy do more pieces in the right wing broadsheets and is it wise to do so? Will he do more pieces in the right wing broadsheets? So you're saying basically the Telegraph, I can't imagine writing for the Sun, rightly so, after Hillsborough and Orgreave and everything, specifically Hillsborough, of course. Will he write more for the right wing broadsheets? So you've got the Times, which isn't really a broadsheet anymore, you've got the, the Telegraph, you've got the Mail, I guess. Will he? Well, I can't predict the future, so I have no idea. If it was up to me, Should he? No, absolutely not. And that might confuse some people. They go, Aaron, come on, you know, it's important. If it's put on a plate, fantastic. Of course, don't just dismiss it. But I don't think it should inform an uh, an inherent part of his media strategy. Generally, the right-wing print media in particular. So how would he win? Now, I'm not one of these people that says that social media can circumvent mainstream media. Clearly, in terms of the selectorate, you know, the 60% of people, the 62% of the, the people who could, eligible, you know, could eligible vote, who've just voted for him, clearly social media is pretty effective, isn't it? But let's say social media is good for the hardcore 15% of the country and they won't just be presaged into voting for Jeremy Corbyn on the basis of social media, but we'll probably do more besides that. And I do actually think that could apply to 10, 15% of the country. Uh, could, you know, 10% of the country is 6.5 million people, in terms of the electoral roll, was it four and a half million people, something like that, Labour should literally be saying, how can we get as many of these people as possible to be Labour Party members and active activists? Not just paper activists, active activists. So social media is important for those people, but more to get them mobilised than to get them to vote, because we need that hard call to do more than simply vote. In addition to that, broadcast, Okay. I think Gardner's hour be fantastic. I think he should be on the telly with Alan Titchmarsh making some compost. Monty Don. He should be doing more broadcast stuff that's not really in politics. Ditto Macdonald. Ditto Diane Abbott. Ditto basically all the shadow cabinet people that have come in, in the last couple of months. Richard Bergen, Clive Lewis, Angela Rayner to raise their profile. I think actually television and radio is really important. I think print can be really overstated. And of course, who wants to do that more than anybody else? It's print journalists. Print is obviously declining and that's a long story Uh, and because it's been going on for so long we often forget it's happening but it is happening by 2020 i think it would have culminated to such an extent that it it won't be that bigger player i mean the fact that the guardian or the daily mirror couldn't decide the labor leader this time round they were almost a zero variable in that is is remarkable it is really remarkable now could you apply that to a whole general election probably not uh, so that's where the broadcast stuff comes in. And it has to be more kind of celeb-focused. And then in addition to that, I would have the the influencers, the Daniel Radcliffes, people like this, and I'd get them to disseminate uh, the Corbyn message as much as anybody else. Uh, I have a I have something of a, a strategy in my mind, um, and it's probably too long for this podcast. But it really does not involve writing think pieces for the Daily Telegraph or the Mail on Sunday. These are still massive players particularly on the right, particularly the mail. I mean, it's. I think it's the most read English-speaking newspaper online in the world. But people are going there. I go there. I mean, what does that mean in terms of its political clout? I go there. What do I read? I read about Jennifer Lopez having a Starbucks in Beverly Hills. I don't go there to get political information. Some people do, but I think that can be overstated. So will he? I don't know. Should he? I don't think so. Another big thing, by the way, I'm saying social media and broadcast is, of course, the BBC. The BBC, 70% of the radio news market, 70% of the TV news market, huge, huge majority of online news market in the UK. So the BBC is also another one. And I think a Corbynista strategy would have to be isolating the BBC, social media, broadcast. You can almost forget print media, really. And I would even throw in The Guardian or The Independent or whatever. I'm not saying dismiss them, be nasty. I've said that in the past, and it's, it's got the backup of a lot of people especially in that industry. Surprise, surprise. They're not that important, but certainly build bridges with them. Uh, I don't think you need to make that effort necessarily with the with the Telegraph. Question three. This is from Leah Borromeo, at Monstrous. Hello, Leah. What we really want to know is what at Jeremy Corbyn sings in the shower and who's looking after El Gatto. Hmm. What does Jeremy Corbyn sing in the shower? Good question. Red flag? Jerusalem? Uh, Kalinka? Who knows? Anything but uh, God Saves the Queen, one presumes I have to agree with them. I think it's just the worst even if you were a patriot even if you believed in the queen it's just the worst national anthem I think it's horrific in terms of who looks after Elgato we need to find out right because I'm reliably informed that Laura Alvarez is just as busy as her husband Jeremy Corbyn maybe Elgato is not getting the kind of love that they deserve again that's something I think all of us need to know more about please share any information on that subject if you have it Next question. This is a good question. The Lens Grinder, at Lens Gruder at Aram at Navarra Media. Based on performance, doesn't the new Shadow Cabinet deserve a chance to continue its work, in parenthesis, with some additions? Totally agree. One of the reasons why there was not much coherent policy coming out from Corbyn for the first eight months, right, of his leadership, was there was so much intransigence and turgidness in the Shadow Cabinet. And of course, I think his original sin, like I say, was generosity in bringing together all the different political hues and personalities of the parliamentary lower party into his shadow cabinet. I think that was a mistake. It meant that nothing could move; nobody could agree on anything. And since then, since the since we had the coup, I, I talk about it as the coup on Twitter. People go, "Unity! You can't say coup. I mean, it was a coup." let's just call a spade a spade. People t- tried to remove the guy un- democratically. They had hoped he would resign. Then they hoped that he wouldn't get on the ballot. I mean, that's a coup. Anyway, so when the chicken coup happened, these 172 MPs, motion of confidence, dozens of people leaving the shadow cabinet, we then had this new cabinet and some people have really impressed, right? And that's not just on the campaign trail with the, with Jeremy Corbyn. So Richard Bergen is one on the campaign trail. He is fantastic, amazing orator, enthusiastic, um, full of passion and vigour and these aren't things you associate typically with British politicians right really impressive guy you can see him in a general election wowing crowds but I'm not just talking about that Angela Rayner Clive Lewis in the House of Commons doing their duties as sh- shadow cabinet ministers as much as TV personalities or uh, campaigners elsewhere outside of London have really impressed me too and I think actually this generation of of MPs who came through in 2015, so Angela Rayner, uh, Clive Lewis, Richard Bergen, but I think other people around them who who haven't quite got the same name recognition that they probably deserve, Kat Smith, Kate Ossimor, really impressive. I like Dawn Butler a lot. I think she's great. And I actually agree, I think the Shadow Cabinet in the last couple of months has been wonderful. It's been ethnically uh, very broad, <laughs> brings together all the different... Backgrounds and heritages of of Britain. And I'm really proud of that. Actually, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in the last couple of months to see because I've not been very proud to be from this country this summer. But that was a good thing to see. Uh, Yeah, so there will be some additions. Who would they be? I suppose people that want to come back in and not cause a fuss. So somebody like a Sarah Champion. She's got uh, a lot of intelligence and and, uh, a lot of passion in regards to her portfolio. So she'd be one. Would I personally... Have people like Wes Streeting or um, Hillary Benn in a shadow cabinet? No, I would not. Not for the life of me. If you think this is the end of it, I mean, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. This is the end of round two. I mean, there won't be many rounds left. and I think this is the hardest one because they didn't think there would be a round three. There probably will be a round three, maybe in 2018, 2019. All depends on the general election, of course. And we now know after the last couple of years, speculation is next to worthless when it comes to politics. But I personally wouldn't have them in the cabinet because they would do the same thing they did the first time, which was to slow things down, make everything as turgid and difficult as possible, undermine you, brief against you. I mean, why would you do that? Hilary Benn's not even a particularly talented person. Okay, He's not even a particularly intelligent guy, hasn't actually got many ideas. I don't mean to be unnecessarily nasty, but if you're going to bring somebody into the shadow cabinet, they need to bring something. If they have that overhead of being politically difficult, undermining you, trying to effectively get you to lose your job, which is what Hillary Benn will be trying to do to Jeremy Corbyn. Right at the first minute after that, that victory was announced yesterday afternoon, he knew what he wanted to do. Why would you want that person in the shadow cabinet unless they were supremely talented, or unless they represented a huge swathe of opinion in the parliamentary Labour Party or the membership? I, I don't really see that actually in, in the in the in the chicken coup MPs. I mean, Hilary Benn did one good speech on Syria talking about the international brigades. Okay, I didn't even think he was that good, by the way. But whatever. Yeah, what does he bring? Not much. A bit of you know vanity. Sorry, Hillary. Uh, Nothing wrong with vanity, by the way. I like vanity, but just not misplaced vanity, which I think it is in your case. Next question. This is from Son of Dave, at Pro Tim. At Aramisani at Navarra Media, what will widely followed left voices do to aid the mammoth task of unifying the party? Well, who do you mean? I mean, Owen Jones is Mr. Conciliation, okay? He is built to bring people together. I think, actually, sometimes to his own detriment, sometimes the detriment of his politics, But generally in life, it's a good trait to have. Uh, And if you're going to be one of the two extremes, I would far rather be Owens bringing people together always willing to forgive, you know, I would not want to forgive a Benn or a West for the way they've behaved in the last couple of months, unless they can demonstrate over a couple of months, next, if, if over the next one or two months that they've changed, of course you give them a second chance, but you don't give people second chances for no reason whatsoever. At the same time, clearly you don't lambast them, but Jeremy Corbyn never did that. Jeremy Corbyn never did that. I do that, but I can I can say what I want. I'm not a parliamentary, I'm not a parliamentary member. I'm not a councillor. I'm not elected to any office. You know, maybe if I was, I wouldn't say these things. Maybe that's why so many of these people have such boring opinions. But there you go. So in terms of bringing unity to the party, it's a tough one, isn't it? You know, for me, what I would say is to people in uh, saving Labour, which is tiny. You know, Open Labour in progress which is a big organization you know i would say look at momentum look how they've enthused people they've had ideas and they've brought people into the party and if you want control of the party fantastic knock yourselves out but do what they've done and in the internet age it isn't that hard right with the rules that the party now has it isn't that hard in terms of uh, voting for a new leader but rather than do that what's their default rather than saying oh Let's do what Momentum's done. Let's get 100,000 people to join the party. Because, by the way, they think that that kind of politics can win Labour a majority. They think that that politics can get Labour 13 million votes, which is what you'd need to win a general election, okay? Probably. And yet it can't get 100,000 people to join the party. I find that difficult to believe, personally. But nevertheless, if they really believe in that, be very prominent in your politics, have ideas, examine what you want, persuade others, get them on board, engage in collective action... Now, I think they haven't done that for so long that they've forgotten how to do it. But I think that's, that's the best way to bring unity. You bring unity through difference. You bring unity through creating a, an environment where difference is acceptable, as long as the difference is political and not personal. I would say, personally, journalists, particularly on the left, should be saying, this is how we've changed the party to resemble or approximate the politics we want. You should do likewise and be open to that. And I, Actually, I believe that, and I am open to that. I'm sure people like Owen or Ellie May um, would be open to that as well. I mean, nobody disagrees with that. You know, Bring people in, persuade them, have ideas. And what betokens the complete absence of strategy on the Labour right, na- right now the Labour right right now, is that the immediate reaction from the saving labor on Twitter was join give us your email, join the fight back. You know, maybe take a step back and well first of all that doesn't speak of unity, does it? Maybe take a step back and just think, what do we believe in? What's our common purpose? What's our common aim? What's our common direction? What will bind us together when the going gets tough? Why are we in politics? And I don't think many of them actually know the answers to any of those questions. And until they do, their organisations will not scale. And by the way, it's not just momentum that's scaling. The SNP, huge membership, more than 100,000 people. The Greens, still by historic standards, huge. Uh, UKIP, not a big membership organisation, but clearly persuaded a lot of people over uh, Brexit. People are getting involved actively in politics like never before. Well, not in modern history anyway. You could say maybe the... There's a good book by a woman called Theda the about the demise of American associative democracy. You could argue maybe the late 19th century. But I think we're actually moving now to a golden age of political participation. I think we're just at the beginning of it. And if they don't grasp that as the only means by which they can transform not only the Labour Party, but the country and get it to reflect their politics, I think they're lost. They're lost. Their strategies are from the 80s stylless but they're from the 80s in terms of being applied to labor and they won't get they won't get very far so that's it and you know I'm, I'm in the i'm in the party i've been in the party back in the party for almost a year now and it's exciting to be in an organization where factions and this is again not a negative word one faction believes this one faction believes this one faction believes that one faction believes that great you know paul mason agrees on john um John McTernan on trident OK, he wants to keep Trident. And that's what politics is all about. It's about difference, persuasion, deliberation. So that's what I would say. Bring people together by saying, here's the template. This is the direction of politics generally, not just in Britain, not just in Europe, but across the world. It's about association. It's about persuasion. It's about mass, mass participation. On a scale we've not really seen in, well, certainly not my lifetime. That's how you bring together unity. Other than that, I don't know. If people aren't willing to win through those means, given where we are, um, I don't really know what to to say to them. I'd say, you know what, especially with the Parliamentary Labour Party, you know, you're very talented people. You're very smart. You've got lots of social capital. We've got things to do. We're going to change the world. You can do it with us and you could be a part of that. And you can have influence over how that looks. Or you can go and be a top chairman of a a charity or a chief executive of a business. Or go and write a a book, um, which I'm sure will sell really well. Uh, But don't waste your time. Don't waste our time. I think that's a good attitude personally. And some may go on and do that. And that's life. You know, people move in different directions. That's life. Nothing to be regretted about. Next question. This one is from Cameron James Broom at Cameron JB. Dot dot dot. At Aramistan at Novara Media, maybe analyse eighteen to twenty-four year olds who voted for Smith. Parenthesis. My hypothesis: Smith strongly pre-remain, which appeals to them. I agree with that. Maybe I don't know. I just think that Labour students are fundamentally quite right-wing by the standards of the party, and that that was a major factor. I guess who knows? Labour students have been right-wing since before Blair, mid-nineties. I think Jim Murphy, in fact, was the NUS president, and he kind of made the NUS safe for Labour ahead of their 97 election win. But yeah, the the most important thing about that thing, about 18 to 24-year-olds, along with it being so close in London, shows that it's not students in London which are the basis of Corbyn's support. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Um, And I think, actually, to be fair to many critics, I think they're looking at that and going, oh, got that badly wrong. Actually, the average Corbyn supporter is a 55-year-old woman up north. It's not... A twenty-five-year-old Gobby graduate student at, you know, the LSE or UCL, which is true. That is the case. And as your point rightly corrects, 18, 24 twenty-four twenty-four-year-olds voted for Smith. The, the pro-remain thing, I don't know. I think people understand generally that Corbyn had to be quite pragmatic around the EU. Any Labour leader did to not alienate the base. They had to do the right thing and be honest, but also you can't you can't just completely be at odds with one-third of your voters. I mean, that's, a, that's politics. And to suggest otherwise is ridiculous, quite frankly. Final question. We did keep it short. This is going to be under 40 minutes. Fantastic. Final question from Anne Logan, at AB underscore Logan, at Aramistani at Navarra Media. What is our alternative economic strategy? Well, I can tell you what John MacDonald's alternative economic strategy is, which is, I'd say it's Keynesianism. It's very, very strong Keynesianism. Some of his advisors might disagree with that conclusion, we should get them on to do a podcast soon. John McDonald the centrepiece of the economic policy is £500 billion worth of money, which would come as a fiscal stimulus, not a monetary one, which is to say it would be raised through general taxation, tax and spend, rather than through a monetary stimulus like QE, where the Bank of England prints off money for governments to spend as a stimulus package, So, which I favour, by the way. Um, albeit it would look very different to the one we saw in 2000 and. 9, 10, 11, uh, 12. Uh, went on quite, quite a long time in the States. Here too, uh, it would look quite different if, if it was applied by a left-wing government. So the stimulus that's coming out from John McDonnell is a fiscal stimulus, £500 billion. Most of it's about reindustrialization or a, a new kind of industrial policy with development banks and then regional development banks to develop local business ecologies, beyond London in particular. Then, of course, there's a huge... Desire to build hundreds of thousands of council homes. I don't know how many, in I don't know how many specifically. There's 500,000 council homes that McDonald and Corbyn would want to build between 2020 and 2025. Clearly that's a huge stimulus. So the, econ- the economic strategy is coming from a fiscal stimulus around a different kind of credit uh, with a new ecology of institutions. It's about a massive programme of house building and just a different role fundamentally for the state in investment what's my alternative economic strategy well i'd say that we need to transition to something beyond capitalism and that would start with something beyond neoliberalism so what does that look like well neoliberalism people pretend it doesn't exist it does exist very quickly it means low wages it means weak unions and it means a particular kind of monetary policy which privileges the financial sector or the services generally in the finance sector in particular and that comes at the cost of industry and. Exports often. So it's about monetary policy, it's about weak unions, and it's about low pay for most people. And that's descriptively what's happened over the last 30 years, but it's also prescriptively what those policymakers wanted to do. They've achieved what they wanted to do. These aren't, you know, the fact we've got stagnating pay for eight years in this country is a good thing from a point of international competitiveness. Uh, the fact that we've got weak unions is a good thing for these people it's not a bad thing it's not a externality they didn't want to happen so in terms of my uh, economic strategy, transition is something beyond neoliberalism so we need to strengthen unions we need to have higher pay and we need to move away from this fixation with monetary policy which only cares about inflation and doesn't care about employment or about wages the bank of england's whole raison d'etre is to keep inflation low really that's well it's to create obviously a favourable business environment but it's major understanding of that is by keeping inflation low I would say that it's ambit has to move away from low inflation has to include and by the way some of these people even say this quite openly people like Mark Carney consider it you know would have to move towards yeah keeping inflation moderately reasonable but also we want wages to go up also we want effectively full employment albeit on lower hours and of course, I can't talk about economic policy without mentioning fully automated luxury communism. So where would that fit in? How do we get it from the Tories, governing potentially for 10 years, obviously in coalition with the, the Lib Dems for five of them, and then in 20, a Labour government, which implements fully automated luxury communism, actually it's it's easier than it sounds sounds ridiculous it's easier than it sounds i would say incrementally the economic strategy would involve something similar to what mcdonalds outlining with different kind of industrial policy moves away from london moves to a high wage economy so you have a minimum wage of around 12 pounds an hour anybody working full time is on 26 grand a year which is the median wage the average wage in the country right now so that's wages you enhance unions and union recognition, you enhance industrial rights quite significantly. Then in addition to that massive program of house building, Uh, education is free at the point of consumption, healthcare free at the point of consumption. And these are the resources that people then have to live their lives as they see fit. A second term you might implement, a a social wage, a a basic income. But I think you'd probably have to leave that for the first five years of a Labour government because it, A, could go wrong, Uh, B, it's a huge thing. And you know what, let's focus on the old school social democratic reforms, which are not passé, they are not passé. The idea that people have a human right to housing, education, and healthcare is not a bygone of you know the industrial age and tankies and the mid twentieth century. We're human beings. We need these three things. The fact that they are human rights indicates that they a transcend geographical borders. A b are timeless. If they were neither of those things, they would not be human rights, would they? So that would be my that would be my suggestion transition to a low-hour, high-pay economy rather than a low-pay, high-hours economy, have a much bigger role for the state in the economy generally. I would personally want to bring into public ownership certain companies like, for instance, BAE Systems, biggest and poor of engineers in the UK, 20,000 engineers. They're working on making typhoon fighter jets for Saudi Arabia. Why are they doing that? They should be working on building you know, the technologies of tomorrow, synthetic biology... Uh, AI, automated avionics. So they do this stuff already, the avionics stuff, right? So just do drones, but for civilian uses. Space transport. Talked about this many times before, my obsession with asteroid mining. I think it's a big deal if we're going to deal with climate change. I think it's a necessity, actually. So you've got these 20,000 engineers, this huge company. They could be doing all those things rather than working on surveillance systems for the United Arab Emirates or giving typhoon jets for $4 billion pounds to the Saudis to bomb Yemen, one of the poorest countries in the world. So generally a bigger role for the state. And I think the right to buy um, in regard to workers and their companies, which has been suggested by McDonald's, a very clever idea. I'd love to see that worked out. So I kind of agree with them, but I'd also go beyond it. And I think we do need to start talking about an economy which is not fixated on low inflation, is not fixated on growth, but is fixated instead on bringing down hourly work for everyone bringing up wages we need to start indexing happiness as as difficult (laughs) as that is and i think we need to start having less of a fixation with inflation we need to start having less of a fixation with gdp growth and instead focus on and these will be the metrics right for a successful economy falling hourly work increasing wages on an hourly basis of course And happiness. I don't know how you're going to measure happiness, but we're going to measure it. We're going to have to have some kind of metric to measure it. And educational attainment, housing, access to housing and access to healthcare would all be in there too. So that's my economic alternative. And it would be explicitly about transitioning to something beyond neoliberalism. And there'll be that conversation now around Corbyn or McDonald. Do we want to say that to the public? I think you do. I think most people recognise things have gone badly wrong in the last 40 years, hence why they voted for Brexit. And I think you need to give them a compelling answer, which is well-rounded, holistic, as to why that would be necessary for them to make sense of a potential Labour government, which would be very, very different, not just in terms of messaging, but policy, to anything that has gone for the last 40 years, OK? They need to make sense of that, and you need to provide that frame a year or two in advance this cannot be viewed as a continuation with the status quo this can't be Milibandism it'll have to be something far more on that note I'm off to Liverpool tomorrow morning I'll be talking at a Jacobin event on New Media on Tuesday but I'm around all day Monday all day Tuesday I'll be making another one or two podcasts again help me find a name for this podcast if we're going to do it more regularly it needs a name right it can't be called the podcast with no name the news from nowhere oh my god there you go maybe not Or maybe, yeah, you tell me what you think. My name's Aaron Bastani. This will be up on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Navarra Media very soon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.